Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Although it shook me too, because it, it, it means that those writings have a firmer root in his biography than I understood when I started working on Oscar Wilde. I was very caught up in the enchantment and the magic and the virtuosity. And I, I too, was one of those readers and critics who, who saw these as consummate expressions of art. But I think that's right. From a biographical point of view, there is a kind of unity there. I think Wilde says at one point, uh, all one's life, one is what one is going to be. And I think that's exactly it, that the early periods of his life and the early works of his life are expressions of himself, <laughs> of, of, of a self that, that is present right until the end. I have had great success. I have had great failure. I have learned the value of each, and I know now that failure means more, always must mean more than success. Why then should I complain? I have at last come to the complete life which every artist must experience in order to join beauty to truth. The words of Oscar Wilde taken from a conversation with English playwright and illustrator Lawrence Houseman in September 1899. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to explore the final years of Oscar Wilde's life with British literary critic and author Nicholas Frankel, whose latest biography, Oscar Wilde, The Unrepentant Years, has just been published by Harvard University where Nick argues imprisonment and exile paradoxically liberated him to pursue an uninhibited life. So who was Oscar Wilde? How uncompromising and resolute was he? And how did Wilde's experience of pain and suffering in Reading Gale heighten his creative and imaginative powers? It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Nicholas Frankel. I'm Professor of English at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I've uh, had a lifelong interest in Oscar Wilde. I've published uh, a number of books on him, and this uh, month marks the appearance of my latest book, uh, a new biography, Oscar Wilde, The Unrepentant Years, focused on the neglected last years of his life, uh, and I've edited a number of his works at this point too. Really well done on the book, Nick. It's an extraordinary, interesting read. And I might pick up on the title later, The Unrepentant Years, because it is um, it is an angle that you do uh, develop throughout uh, the biography. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off. What makes for a good life? Well, it's a great, a great question to ask a biographer, of course, and, I, and uh, a position I feel, uh, excuse me, a question I feel I'm probably better able to answer now than I was a few years ago. Wilde himself, said that he had led a full, towards the very end of his life, he said he'd led a full or complete life, that he had experienced great success and great failure and had learned the value of each, uh, that he'd experienced the bitter and the sweet, and he knew them both, and you needed to, to, to know them both to, to, to appreciate life to the full. But I think what strikes an outsider about Wilde's life um, is how completely... He lived at one with himself and how he remained, uh, how at one with himself and how true he remained right up to the end of his uh, days, really, right up to his death. And even in the face of adversity, he was perfectly and absolutely himself. Uh, And I, I think a couple of other things strike me about his life, too. He had an incredible capacity to take pleasure in life 
Uh, even, as I say, in the face of extreme adversity, uh, I suppose he treated life the, as a kind of gift. He, he would have said uh, that, that life is the greatest of the arts. And I think when you look at his life, you see that idea reflected in his life, as well as exemplified by it. He treats every day as a work of art. Um, it's a well-lived life. I suppose you could argue there that it's a very um, generous take on the world to treat every day as a work of art because within all of that it's um, leaving your life open to experimentation, to the spontaneous, to have a very fluid existence and that in itself creates for an interesting um, life, doesn't it? I think so. I think that's right. He's open to experience wherever it presents itself. I mean, there are some downsides too. He's not somebody who's careful at managing his life in the long term. He's terrible with money, for instance, uh, and money sort of slips through his fingers uh, like water towards the end of his days. Uh, at the same time, he, he didn't really, I think this is what's new about my work, he didn't really harbor any bitterness about what had been done to him and was nearly up until the end capable of living with extreme pleasure <laughs> Uh, really uh, quite quite sh shocking pleasure and, and, and uh, enjoyment of life. He comes across as a very defined character in your biography and that, you know, um, you know, whether he was unrepentant um, or not, he was well able to um, put a confident face out to the world and to and to move forward in life. I think that's right. Um, certainly that note of defiance was not always evident uh, up until his imprisonment and his uh, courtroom trials. Uh, I think, you know, to many in his day, he seemed a kind of court jester to the English, uh, will willing to play the dandy and the fool. But I think if you look a little bit more closely at his life, and most certainly at his work, I think you can see uh, a real measure of defiance and, and even radical politics present in his work. And then, of course, that defiance becomes more open as a result of his trials and imprisonment when he comes out. Uh, at first, he's really quite radically defiant. He says he wants to emerge from prison, uh, determined to change it, ch change prison for others to represent the suffering in his writing. And he's really quite, uh, quite um, focused on the direction he wants to take uh, and re re really at odds with, always at odds with uh, English culture, the English authoritarian culture. Do you think his style of individualism was just too far ahead from his contemporaries? He obviously faced um, serious, um, serious judgments later in life, and we might get on to that later. But he was clearly an individualist from an early age. But I'm wondering, was the world ready for that? You know, we live in very um, progressive uh, times now and we have a space for what people would see as maybe eccentricity or difference or whatever. But it seems from how you've written this um, biography that the world was not in step with him or he maybe was not in step with that or the world he was operating in. Maybe he was just a pace ahead, maybe. I think that's exactly right, Susan. I think in some ways he's a more modern figure than the Victorians were able to, to handle. And he has much more, of course, much more in common, I, I think, with, with the 20th century than he does with the, uh, with the Victorian era. Of course, he was... Uh, somebody who exploited the mass media and was careful to... I suppose he's one of the first modern celebrities, of course, uh, early on in his career, and, and that's striking, his capacity to, to, to harness and use the media of his day. 
But I think particularly in terms of sexuality and gender politics, he was he was really too hot to handle for, for the Victorians, uh, pushing the limits of what it meant to, to be a man. And then, of course, hinting uh, in his uh, pre-prison writings, uh, especially in the picture of Dorian Gray, at, uh, at, at, at uh, same-sex, male same-sex sexuality, male same-sex desire. And that was that was clearly too much for the uh, institutions of his day. I can't help feeling it uh, seeped over into his courtroom trials and, uh, and partly explains the vehemence with which the English uh, prosecuted him um, uh, in 1895. It's reputed to be the case that he was given a number of opportunities to back out of that, those trials or to, to flee, to escape justice, but he wanted to hold his ground. Do you think he was somewhat misunderstood by all of those around him? Because, you know, he's, you know, I can remember growing up and, 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 and picking up some of his plays and, you know, uh, talking to teachers at school and then talking to other people. And he's always seen as this kind of social butterfly, clearly great fun and, you know, uh, but prancing around a bit and, you know, acting the bit of the, the twat. But underneath <laughs> all that twat-like stuff, there was a very heavy, complex um, mind, which um, was... Um, uh, had had lots of ideas, lots of opinions, and and clearly was ahead of his time. Like his ideas on prison conditions, his and his ideas on socialism, and so on, it are very different to how he's framed as this velvet wearing, uh, jokey, um, larger than life, uh, you know, uh, guy. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think one has to think of him really as speaking to two, at least two distinct audiences, and certainly to to the popular. Uh, at the popular level, to a mass audience, he is what you're describing. He was something of a fool, something of a comical figure. It was hard to take him seriously. But I think those who knew him well, uh, though, those perhaps of the same sexual persuasion or some pol- political persuasions, took him far more seriously than that. I mean, for instance, George Bernard Shaw, uh, the, the anarchist Prince Kropotkin, uh, they, they understood where he was coming from. He had serious friends doing... Uh, serious work. Uh, and of course, he was much more admired in France. Uh, the intellectual class did take him seriously in France, almost to the point, I think, of seeing him as one of their own. I think that that partly helps to explain why he uh, flew to France immediately after he came out of prison and seemed, uh, you know, happy to, to remain there to the end of his days. He must have been a very challenging um, person to write about because clearly he challenges every idea um, on, you know, how to live a life because he he cross-cut so many different movements, um, creative pursuits and also different types of social agendas. And he doesn't fit comfortably or neatly into any box. You know, it's easy just to say he was this or it's easy to say he was that. But he was so many different things within his time to so many different people and is also understood a lot differently now. I think that's true, but it's also rather liberating because, he, as I began by saying, I think he's so much his own person. Uh, and you're right, there are so many elements to his makeup, and he is that uh, there are so many, um, so many, as I say, so many elements to his makeup. But he's so much his own person. He's such a striking individual, uh, and he's so distinctive <laughs> in his language and in his wit. Uh, I found him. I personally found him. Uh, a thrill, <laughs> pleasure to write about, and 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 easy to, easy to write about. But you're right; he can't be pigeonholed. Um, 
it would be wrong to pigeonhole him as a as a socialist or an Irish nationalist or a, or even a homosexual spokesperson. Those are simplistic categories, and he he defies that kind of simplification for sure. Now, the unrepentant years focuses on um, the last few years of his life. And as as I was progressing through the biography, um, I, I thought to myself, it's very sad reading about, you know, how some of his friendships dissolved. It's very, it was very sad reading about the uh, how he was marginalised and how he was judged. But in another way, it's a very inspirational biography because it's a story of resilience. Absolutely. I, I think that's the most striking thing for me is that as so many people fell away, even people who had been close to him, friendly to him, sympathetic to him uh, at earlier periods of his life, started to fall away. He remained resilient uh, and he remained even ebullient. Of course, he had a small circle uh, that remained loyal to him, uh, whom who he continued to see in his final years. And of course, the most significant uh, of those is Lord Alfred Douglas, who I feel has been grossly misunderstood uh, by uh, uh, by history. And for at least a year, Douglas was very, very closely involved in in Wilde's life. But Douglas is by no means the only one. But as I say, he uh, and as you say, I mean, he maintained that ebullience, that that um, that, and and he maintained his his good humour. He could see the. The, the laughter, he, he was uh, remained capable of laughing at life right up to the end, really, right up until he, he, he began to get terminally sick uh, uh, in, in 1900, the year he died in. How do you think he managed that, though, to stay positive, to stay creative and alive and receptive in the world? Because, I, you know, you write that he lost his position in life, he lost his wife, his children, his yeah. wealth, his fame, um, a lot of his, you know, the, the social apparatus that he engaged with. He lost yeah. everything effectively, but he didn't lose his marbles. That's true. You know, I think in a strange way, he was liberated by prison and by ostracism. It, it meant that he had really nothing more to lose. And I think in a sense, that liberated him to be more open about who he was. I think he became more uninhibited uh, in, these, uh, in, the, in these final years. In fact, it shocked the French. He was quite open about his relations with young men. I think even on the street, he was seen kissing or embracing young men and he took young men back to back to his hotel room quite openly and of course this was very shocking in his day it would even be shocking perhaps today and he'd never he'd never been quite that open uh in london of course he'd been married uh, and had to uh maintain the facade of the the husband father and pater familias but he could drop all that when he came out of prison um so i, I do feel in a strange way he was um uh, liberated by it. You write, Wilde always insisted his writing should be understood as consummate examples of art for art's sake. I'm just wondering, what do you make of that? Well, it, to, some, to some extent, that has always been the position. He insisted on a number of occasions that he was the consummate artist. And of course, early in his career, he was in competition with people like James McNeil, Whistler, uh, 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 the supreme aesthetes, another remarkable dandy, incidentally. And I think for, for large parts of the last hundred years, it has been the case that critics have seen his writings as uh, art for art's sake, whatever his views and his positions might have been. Uh, this is 
uh, writing that uh, is remarkable for its wit, its uh, dexterity, and and its uh, verbal beauty. Um, um, but none, I, I can't help feeling that that was something of a mask and uh, and a deflection, and that and that he uh, he used the the facade of the consumer artist as a kind of mask behind which he was operating. Uh, and of course, I suppose at a deeper level, his writings are concerned with social and sexual uh, values, uh, and he's trying to change those values too. You mentioned Richard Elman and his um, iconic biography of Oscar Wilde. You also touch on the fact that he presented his life somewhat like a Greek tragedy. And uh, I'm just wondering, can you talk me through that? Well, um, yes, Elman uh, shapes Oscar Wilde's life as as a Greek tragedy. Uh, And I suppose, you know, the bulk of Elman's uh, uh, concern, the bulk of that biography, and it's a marvelous biography up to a point, uh, is concerned with the years of success, uh, with, with, with the, the large part of Wilde's life that took place before his imprisonment. Uh, that means that, that Elman, and, and to be fair to Elman, he was, he was terminally ill when he was uh, in a rush to finish that biography. He didn't really give that much attention to Wilde's life after he came out of prison. Uh, and so it was very easy to see uh, Wilde's final years as a kind of tragic end to years of great success. But uh, of course, what I've done is largely, uh, largely uh, ignore those years of success, uh, success, so-called success, and of course they were successful in many ways, and really try to comprehend this final period on its own terms and look at Wilde very closely for how he behaved and what he said and his relationships in these final years. And I've come to a very different uh, set of conclusions that his life, his life, you know, shouldn't be shaped as a tragedy. He wasn't a victim. He certainly wasn't the victim uh, of Lord Alfred Douglas, as Richard Elman makes him out to be. He was somebody, A, he was deeply in love with Lord Alfred Douglas, and I believe Douglas was deeply in love with him too. And that explains a lot of uh, their behaviors in the last year. But he was somebody, as I began by saying, who, who maintained a capacity to enjoy and celebrate life, even in the face of poverty and social ostracism. But Nick, it all comes down to the you know philosophical questions of like, how do you view success? How do you view wealth? How do <laughs> yes. you view ambition? And whether you could see ambition in terms of how it relates to resilience and survival or how you overcome uh, suffering and pain and all of that type of stuff. Or you could look at crudely as in the houses that you live in, you know, the successful, you know, books that you publish and, and the money you make out, out of it. So what yes. one biographer will pick up on is uh, very different to another. Yes, I think so. Although even those years of so-called success, you know, just success by the common standards uh, of our day, you know, monetary, social success, uh, career career success, uh, Wilde was always flirting with disaster. It has to be remembered. He called himself the spendthrift of his own genius. I think he knew that he was always on the verge of disaster. Of course, his finances were a wreck uh, and his... Um, in the same year in which he was imprisoned, of course, he was declared bankrupt. And it's not, he wasn't made bankrupt simply because of the, uh, the, the, the uh, legal costs that, that, that he was forced to pay uh, during his trials. He was made bankrupt, too, because of the, 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 the incredible uh, uh, expenditures he'd made over those years. So, again, I think there's more consistency 
between these so-called years of disaster uh, and uh, uh, and so-called years of success than Elman would have made out. You know that 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 that, that he was always living on the brink. I found your chapter on um, Wilde's experience in prison very, very moving. You know, he slept on um, a, a plank bed. There was no no comforts whatsoever. And you described the treadmill. And um, it is horrific to think how prisoners were, um, how they, you know, how they were either put into solitary confinement, the food rationing and how they were treated. Like in today's um, world of international human rights law and humane values and treating people with respect and dignity, it is quite something to think anyone could survive that system. Can you describe what Wilde actually went through? Well, you're right. It's a, it's a shocking and soul-destroying uh, uh, system of punishment that he was put through. And I think it's been described as verging on torture, uh, the severest system of punishment in, in English history. Uh, and at the time that Wilde was put in prison, most prisoners were, as well as given a sentence of, uh, uh, of time in prison, they were subjected to what the late Victorians called hard labor. They were made to perform meaningless, arduous, task that had absolutely no productive purpose whatsoever. So walking uh, the treadmill uh, for hours on end per day uh, or turning a very stiff crank in their prison cell, uh, again, for hours a day. I mean, if I can just give you the statistics, I think the the, uh, Department of Prisons mandated that prisoners on the treadmill had to climb 8,000 feet on the treadmill per day. I mean, that's like climbing a mountain. You know, when you think about it, um, it is literally hiking for several hours. It's hiking for several hours. And this is a man who was not in, in good health. And it wasn't, it wasn't any great surprise that within a matter of days, he, 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 he turned seriously ill in prison. So he was actually only set to the treadmill, I believe, for a couple of weeks because he went to the infirmary straight after that. And of course, that that event became publicised. Journalists got to know about, it, and it became something of a poster boy for the abuses of the prison system. But he did that. He thereafter he was assigned to so-called second-class labour. The treadmill was so-called first-class hard labour. A uh, second-class hard labour uh, was usually the assignment of picking oakum, separating the strands of old tarry rope in his cell. And and he did this in his cell for hours on end, right up until the. Uh, until the end of his imprisonment, in fact, until at least halfway, uh, over halfway through his imprisonment. And uh, in fact, one of his visitors remarked when he, when, when, when he had very few visitors because the rules didn't allow, only allowed four prison visits a year. But one of his visitors attested that his fingers were bleeding and, and chapped uh, f- from picking oakum. So there was that physical torture element to to his sentence. Of course, he was in solitary confinement again as part of the the the, the prison system it, 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 uh they 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 justified it as a, as as main, maintaining that uh, in insisting that prisoners be kept apart from one another in absolute silence and separation they called it the separate system this period of british imprisonment from about 1875 1877 right up to the year after he came out of jail 1898 when the prison 
there was a, a, a new prisons bill, bill that reformed the system. This was probably the, the, the most severe period of, British, uh, of, of, of punishment in British prisons in history, I, I believe. It's his imprisonment that, 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 that especially publicized the, 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 the shocking horror of that system. And of course, when he came out of prison, he published uh, a, a number of pieces, most notably the Ballad of Reading Jail, that gave uh, um, flesh uh, and allowed readers to experience how cruel and how, how terrible the system was for themselves. So that, that poem had some effect on, on the, on the uh, public debate and, and I think contributed to that political change in the prison system. Yeah, you describe um, very vividly, you know, that he suffered incessant diarrhoea, um, continual uh, bouts of insomnia. But it is interesting to see how one life and how one creative life can, in you know, whether it can improve the situation or people's situation in other worlds, in other lives. Because he clearly improved the prison system, which impacted on how prisoners were treated uh, with dignity and respect in Ireland. Like that in itself, is very inspirational. I'm just wondering, how would you describe his brand of socialism? Because it's socialism with a certain ching to it, isn't it? That's right, that's right. And people have questioned whether he, he, he is a genuine socialist. Of course, he published a, a, a remarkable essay four years before he went to prison called The, the Soul of Man Under Socialism. Uh, and I think that still was a thorn in the side of the the English uh, at the time of his imprisonment, where he really does take aim uh, uh, at, at uh, the class, the English class system, uh, and uh, at the uh, and, uh, and at a materialist uh, uh, culture. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's not certainly not orthodox socialism. I, I would describe his politics as really the politics of the individual. He he believes very firmly in the rights of the individual, the freedoms of the individual, the freedoms to love who we want, the freedoms to speak and say what we want. Uh, uh, and he's an enemy of any kind of coercive authoritarianism. I, I suppose I would, I, th- I think he would frankly uh, class himself as a supreme individualist, but it, in, his, in his hands that becomes a kind of political, uh, political um, principle. He was a very forgiving character when you think about it. Now, Osley, you know, um, he was running against the times and came up against a lot of moral, social, economic and, I suppose, political obstacles. But in terms of the space he gave to Lord Alfred Douglas, I think in a lot of ways it's very admirable because whether he was willing to give it a second go, a third go, and, you know, yeah. dirty stuff happens in all relationships. There's never a good guy and a bad guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, Everyone right. act, acts up. It's too, it's too, you know what I mean? We've all done it. But yeah. I'm just wondering, he had a remarkable capacity for forgiveness. And he was had the, I suppose, enthusiasm for life to give things another go. That's right. Well, of course, he says, of, he says at one point of his love for, for Lord Alfred Douglas, he says this to another friend, I love him because he ruined my life. <laughs> and he the greatest clear- loves do that. They tend to, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> so he knew that the power, he knew of the power that, that Douglas uh, 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 held over his life, the spell that Douglas cast. But to be honest, I think he, he never really fell out of love with Lord Alfred Douglas. And I think we need to give Douglas more credit than he's been given in the past for loving uh, Oscar Wilde and act- actually in his way staying truer to him than many commentators have described in the past. Uh, I don't think he had quite so much to forgive 
as he is reputed to uh, to, to have had. Um, uh, of course, he's very hostile to Douglas in that long letter that he writes in prison uh, uh, that's now known as De Profundis. It's really a kind of autobiography, one of Wilde's uh, greatest works. And I spent about a chapter or part of a chapter of my book describing that letter. And in the course of that letter, Wilde really takes Douglas to task for being the uh, really the uh, the reason for his own downfall and imprisonment. But I think it's now generally regarded by scholars and people who who look at uh, who've looked at their lives 